Hey, a lot of stuff taking place. You can go on Church Center, find out. I want to highlight a couple of things very, very quickly. I know Bobby mentioned them. I just want to hit two things for next weekend, uh, next Sunday specifically. A couple of things happening. If you've never been baptized, you're a follower of Jesus. It does beg a huge question if you say, I'm a follower of Jesus and I've never been baptized. There's a huge question with that, question mark in there because you're a follower of Jesus. Baptism is part of that step. If you've never been baptized, we're going to make it as easy as we can uh, for next Sunday specifically. We're going to have a whole team of pastors and elders all here throughout the day so that if you've never been baptized and you just say, you know what, I should do this. You can, without an appointment, you can walk out after church and go to the spe- a specific spot. Say, I'd like to just talk to someone about baptism. And it's a short, a short meeting they would have to you one-on-one just to hear about your faith, how you came to Jesus, to explain a little bit about baptism, and off you run. And if you've never done that, take that step. It's a key step. If you say you're a follower of Jesus, it's a key step in your walk with Jesus. And I can also tell you that whenever we are obedient to God and doing what he tells us to do, there's a blessing that comes that I can't even hardly explain to you. But that'll be that next step. Hopefully you'll do that. Also next Sunday uh, in the afternoon, 3 to 7, we have a discovery class. Uh, I lead that class. It starts at 3 o'clock. We're always done by 7 o'clock. We have dinner in there. I know you're thinking three, you know, four hours was Pastor Scott. You know, delightful. I got it. Uh, truthfully, is only my wife thinks that. The rest of you don't. But the rest, I get that. It's, it goes very, very quick. The folks who have been a part of it walk out and say, man, that was really helpful. Get you an understanding of the church, some direction. It's actually quite fun to be together. We have a dinner break in there. We'd love to have you be a part of that. Signing up for that is helpful because it tells us how to order food. But even that day, if you decide to come last minute, you're welcome to come. Hopefully you will indeed participate in that. Uh, Other item for you. So these cards, you should have got a card when he came in. So two weeks from now, we've got uh, got, uh, Michael Ferris coming. His presentation, Journey to the Potter's House. Uh, How many of you were here last time that he was here? Okay, so not a lot of you. So you need to know that after we had him last time, the feedback we got from virtually everyone when we were soliciting comments were this. They said this, I wish I had known ahead of time what he would say and how good he would be because I would have brought someone with me. Well, we don't know that until we have him. Well, we had him here. We're now having him back so that you can bring someone with you. Just so you know, he'll have the whole 60 minutes start to finish, which means if some of you who would like to wander in about, you know, 15 minutes late, you'll miss the first part of it because he'll have the whole thing from start to finish. The whole stage will be transformed in one of his, into his workshop, and he'll go start to finish and actually make pottery in front of you with an incredible presentation. This is the card where you can use it to invite someone, and please note, Saturday Saturday night service. That's the other thing we've heard from folks through the years. When it comes to Easter, we have a Saturday night service. People have said, you know, it's so much easier to invite someone because they could come with me on Saturday night. Please utilize this this weekend for Michael Ferris, an incredibly powerful uh, message that he brings. If you'd seen him before, you will look forward to seeing him again. If you haven't, if you haven't you're in for a treat and bring someone with you. Please utilize these cards if you might invite folks. Make, a, make note on the card that says we're having him back again first Sunday in December. And that first Sunday, he has a follow-up message that he does. He won't be doing the pottery, but a, a powerful message about healing and healing from the hurts of life. So hopefully you'll be a part of that. Last note, just remember this week, Wednesday night, night of worship. Love to have you come back. Just a, a time of worship. No pressure, no time constraints. Just come and just enjoy the worship of God together as the body of Christ. So that's all the stuff that's taking place. Take, take, check it out in Church Center. So we're going to continue our, in our series this morning. And just before I do that, I need to just say a couple of words because I've been getting a lot of questions and some feedback just about what's been happening in the world today, specifically with Israel and what's happening. How do you, people said to me, how do we pray for that? One of the questions pops up frequently is, is this, you think this is the beginning of the end times and, and those kind of things. So let me just respond to that. Now, first of all, if you've been watching the news as I have and reading the accounts, it's just, it's horrible. Uh, it's horrible. And it, it, it should be disturbing and it should break your heart. And it, and it does mine. I'm sure it does yours as well. And people wonder, you know, how do I pray in this? Well, the Bible gives us an answer, and it says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And notice the beauty of how God has positioned that. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Not pray for all the Israelis, not pray for the Palestinians, not pray for any other group. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Because, folks, interesting, this little postage stamp in the middle of nowhere, and yet when Jerusalem has peace, the world has peace. 
So we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. I would also suggest that as you pray, you pray for the innocent lives lost, whether it be Israeli lives or Palestinian lives. You pray for the innocent lives that are lost and for those families, that somehow they would experience and sense the grace of God even in these horrible moments. That's how we pray. When I pray like that, I have to tell you, it takes me out of all of the political stuff. It takes me out of, you know, picking sides. What I'm for is we're for the side of peace and we're for the side of justice. And when you pray for folks that have been displaced, when you pray for innocent people who've lost their lives or for family members, you can also pray, Lord, and we also pray that your justice would prevail because God is the just, just God. Just God. You know, oftentimes we, we don't see the whole picture. Very honestly, we get, we get pictures painted for us by commentary and, and by sides, if you will. God sees it all and you can trust him to get it all right. I also want to encourage you with something else here. When we read some of these things that are happening, they make the headlines, right? And so now we get focused on those and they are, they're heart-wrenching. They're, they're horrific. But I just want to remind you that as, as horrific as those moments are and as they might stir you, I just want to remind you every day you can do something about some of the horrors in the world. And I, I'm not being trite here. Every week, month when you bring your groceries in on M25, it doesn't seem like the same thing happening around the world. And I get that. But for a family who doesn't have food in their cupboard, that is a frightening thing. And to be able to walk into a food shelf and get food for their family that is resolving or helping to helping a, a family in particular need in that moment. Those things make a difference. A, a coat drive. For us, for us, it's going through our closets and bringing out old coats. For people who don't have a coat, to have a warm jacket in, in this, this January because of you is meeting a critical need. So use these pictures of the world to say, what am I doing right here for the people around me? Just use that as a motivation. Let me get a final statement. Some of you, you will or won't like this. The question is always when something takes place, is this a sign of the end times? And uh, let me just say, it's hard for me to know how to answer because I've gone through so many end times, end times scares in my years of ministry, kind of hard to know. Uh, in 1980s, when I first started ministry, a computer company built the biggest computer in the world. It was located overseas. It occupied like three or four stories of a building that was a full city block long. It was massive. I mean, the computer occupied all of the floors, and they called it the beast. If you think about end time, end, end time scriptures, uh, there's a player in there called the beast. And when that came out and they called it the beast, every church books, movie, everything came out. I was one of them, was preaching a series on the end times because it's happened, the beast is here. I regret some of that because I've missed a key point that Jesus wants for every one of us. Friends, every day you live, you are living in the end times. And so what happens in the world might be of interest, but it shouldn't move you any faster than you ought to be going already living for Jesus today. See, if you live today as if he's coming today, man, you are covered and you're doing exactly what he's called us and asked us to do. I remind you, if you go back into the New Testament, you will find that the, those early Christians, they were absolutely sure, they were sure that they would not die before Jesus returned. And they went through horrible things like we're witnessing today. They went through them, but they were sure Jesus would come back before they died. 2,000 years later, here we are. And how do we respond? We live our lives today as if the imminent return of Jesus is imminent, which means anytime. So live your life today like this is the last day. Let me give you a really encouraging thing. Every day you live, you're, you're one day closer to dying. Thank you for coming to church this morning. Hope you feel good about it. <laughs> Every day you live, you're one day closer to dying. And every day you live, you are living in your end times. So live accordingly as if today's the day. Let me offer a prayer before we look to the word. Father, very sincerely, we might laugh at some of those things because it reminds us of our own folly. It reminds us of how we sometimes get wrapped up and view things. But we do look at the world events that are taking place and our hearts grieve and they should. And not just in this moment, but for other things, whether it be natural disasters, earthquakes, and wars taking place other places, we look at them and we, we, don't, we don't know what to say or even think. And admittedly, there's a natural thought that happens and we see everything and we say, Lord, how long can it go on? Well, I'm thankful to say that you see it all, you know it all, and you get it all right. 
There's nothing that happens that isn't part of the timing of what you have put in place. So we need not get wrapped up or worried about the timing. We've just got to live today as if today is the day. And we'll be in a good position. As we, we look at the world events, Lord, I pray for the peace of Jerusalem. I'm not even exactly sure what that means, but I know when Jerusalem is at peace, the world is at peace. So we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. I pray for the innocent families that have lost loved ones and lives on both sides of this battle. I pray for them and I pray for their family. And whether they are God believers or God rejectors, I pray that somehow in these horrible moments, you'd make yourself known and felt. And that you would remind every one of us that there's nothing that happens that you miss. You see everything. And that you are the righteous judge. And one day everything gets settled and it will be settled perfectly right. Because you are always right. So may we trust you with that. And may the things that we see, may they move us into action. Perhaps we can't do something for people overseas in Israel or uh, in the Gaza Strip. Perhaps we can't do something for the people in Afghanistan or other places where there's turmoil in the world. But we can do something for the people around us. So help us to live out our faith every day as if today's the day that you'll return. We look to your word this morning. I pray that you'll challenge us. We're going to look at your truths this morning that I think for some people that perhaps have never placed their faith in you could be a turning point. We're going to look at truths today that for some of us who have placed our faith in you but still struggle with guilt, today could be a turning point. So I ask that your spirit would have freedom to work in this place this day in every one of our hearts. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're, if you're coming back from last week and when our series, I say welcome back. And if you're not coming back, I just say welcome. Uh, I'm just glad that you're here. We're in our series called I've Lost My Faith. And together we're walking through the process that perhaps you have experienced it. Perhaps you've spoken with someone that has said to you at some point in time, maybe you invited them to church. Maybe you're here because you were invited to church because of this very series. And you said, hey, can I come to church one Sunday? And you, and you heard these words, well, I've lost my faith. I used to believe, but I don't anymore. I you know, lost my religion. I give up on it all. And maybe you're there. Maybe you've heard folks that have been there. And as we're doing that, we're not talking about people who are angry at God in that sense. We're talking about the folks that perhaps have been in a position of saying, you know, I've given up my faith. I've just lost my faith. And they say that with some pain. Because I've said this before, I'll remind you again, that whenever you take God out of the equation, it's a very lonely place. And so I've talked to enough people that have felt like they've lost their faith. And they say that with a sense of loneliness, because when God's out of that picture, it's a tough spot to be in. So we're walking through some of these thoughts that happen. And one of the ways I start each week is I want to expose some of the problems that we have with religion. I want to expose some of the issues that we have with the church stuff. So I'm going to do that yet again this morning. So stick with me as we walk through some things. Let me tell you one of the things that really bugs people about religious people. Uh, and even if you're a religious person, you know, your church person will continue to be religious. Let me tell you what bugs people about you, perhaps. And maybe it's just that religious people. What, what bugs, if you, are you a type of person who has an opinion about things, that you kind of watch things and you have an attitude. Let me tell you what bugs people, and it's this. Now, I'll use religious people as, as, as the focal point. What bugs people is that religious people usually are not content to simply believe what they believe, but then with that, they clearly communicate that what they believe is right and you're wrong. Doesn't that bug you when you talk to people who are sure they're right about something? I mean, when you know, you're talking to them and you know that you're talking and they're not even listening because they have already arrived at, I know I'm right and you're wrong, so what you say means nothing to me. That just bugs me. I mean, even if you're one of those people that do that, don't you hate it when it's done back to you? You know, even if you're one of those people right now saying, well, I am right. But when it happens to you, you hate that. I had a guy in my former church. Uh, he was one of our leaders. He, he loved me. He loved us. He was such a good guy. His name, his name was Jerry. But Jerry had a saying that he would say to me all the time, whenever we'd be pushing you know, on something or whatever, and he'd say this. He'd go, well, okay, but, but it's your mistake to make. Oh. I mean, he, he, he's right, you know, in this case is, you know, I'm, I, I, I was the guy in this case that could make the decision, but he had to get the last word in, and the last word is always, well, it's your mistake to make. I mean, I would get so angry at him, and I'd say, Jerry, that makes me so angry. He goes, well, what's, what's wrong with it? <laughs> what's wrong with it is it's true. <laughs> and, and yeah, he could say it with love because he was so supportive, but 
it used to bug me because he really believed. It was my mistake to make, but I was absolutely wrong. So that kind of bugs us, doesn't it? You see, it's okay what you believe is right and what I believe is exactly right. Everybody else is wrong, but I don't like it when it gets applied to me. All of a sudden, people are narrow-minded and I look at them as being arrogant, uh, even though I'm the same. But that kind of bugs us. And what's interesting about this, that's why the old unwritten rule in relationships have always been this. Remember, you don't talk about two things in life. You don't talk with families and friends with, about religion, politics, those two things. Now, isn't this interesting? Think about this just for a moment. In just about every world religion there is, they have the concept of God being good. I mean, there's really no religion that I could find. I haven't done in-depth you know, search here. But I can't find any religion that starts with a premise that said God is bad. Every world religion starts with the kind of premise that God is good. In fact, most of them would say God is actually very loving. But catch this. But in our relationships and our family gatherings, we can't talk about religion because it will cause fights and battles. Isn't there something wrong there with that picture? And even if all the religions see God as good and loving. Politics and religion, they're a problem. Because one of the things that religion does is it also makes people very dogmatic. What's interesting is somehow along the way in our faith and our growth, we become dogmatic. I mean, it's just not something we believe, but now we're going to be dogmatic about what we believe. And that dogmatic comes in where I'm right and you're wrong. Now, we have the dogmatic group, but then on top of that, there's another group out there, and they view religion in this way. They kind of take the approach that says, listen, it really doesn't matter, you know, which religion you are, just pick one, because they all eventually lead to God. So you got the dogmatic people that would say, one way, the only way is my way. Then you had a whole group of people that say, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Just pick one. It doesn't matter if you're Islamic or Judaism, Christian, Buddhist. In the end, it all works out because all religions basically are the same. Now, here's the problem with that thought process. If you go to an Orthodox Jew and say that, the Orthodox Jew would say, that's not true. That's not true. They're not all the same. They don't all lead you to God. They're not the same. As would the Christians say that, as would the Muslims, the Hindu, the Buddhists, they'd all say, no, that's not true. They're absolutely very, very different. They are not all the same. And so all religions are not the same. But now that said, let's keep adding to this. What's also interesting is that even though they're not the same, they have a lot of similarities. Do you realize that in just about every world religion, they have the same idea of the golden rule? You know, the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But almost every world religion has their version of the golden rule. For the Muslim version, it's this. No one of you is a, is a believer until he loves for his brother what he loves for himself. Golden rule. Aristotle said, we should behave to our friends as we wish our friends to behave to us. Golden rule. Judaism says, what you hate... Don't do to anyone else. Now, even that one, I like the concise piece of that. What you hate being done, don't do it to someone else. So everyone has that version. So here's something that there's a thread between all these religions, but I want to remind you again, no, they're not the same. They are not the same. Now, what's also interesting is that in every religion, do you realize that every religion has a list of do's and don'ts? It doesn't matter which religious group you want to be a part of. In every group, they've got a list of the things you ought to do and the things you ought not to do. C.S. Lewis, many, many years ago, you know C.S. Lewis, very well-known writer, Christian author. Uh, he actually did a little research, and he said that what he found, he found looking at all the world religions. Now, I didn't dig deep enough to see if he's really searched every world religion. But what he said is this. If you look at all the world religions, you'll find at least eight common commandments. Not 10 commandments, but you'll find eight commandments that every world religion would say, these are key. I'll give them to you. Here's what he said. He said, here's the eight commandments. Don't harm others with word or deed. Honor your parents. Be kind to siblings and the elderly. Be honest in all of your dealings. Don't lie. Don't have sex with another person's spouse. Care for those who are, who are weaker than you. And put others first. Those are the eight. He said... Every religious group out there, every faith-based group has these eight commandments that almost every one of them would have in common. Now, let me give you one more thing that all the religions of the world have in common after I give you those eight commandments, and that is every religion in the world has in common, and that is that there's failure in every religion. Let me explain what I mean by that. There's failure. In fact, in every religion you'll find most of their writings are written for what to do with our failures. Which means they all have a list of things you ought to do and ought not to do, and everyone does them wrong. No one fulfills all of the ought to do's. No one fulfills all of the ought not to do's. What religion exposes is the fact that we fail. 
We can't keep the rules. People's failures. So what's interesting, whatever, whatever the picture of religion that you look at, whatever way that religious, religions try to span this gap. Remember I said this earlier, that what religion does, it has us here, we're human, God's up there, it tries to span the gap, it tries to figure how to get us close to God, and what it comes up with are the things to do. So here's the rules, if you will. Here's the way that you're supposed to pray. Here's the way that you're supposed to act. Here's the way you're supposed to, uh, you know, to give. Here's all the things you do to somehow connect with God. Basically, it comes down to this. All the religions in the world, what they reveal is not how to get to God. What they reveal is the fact that we fail at all the rules. That's what it exposes. Let's do a little quick survey in the room just to show the point here. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. I know you hate it, but that's why I'm asking you to do it. Because I don't have to, you do. But I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. Trust me, you're safe with these. But I want the visual effect here for just a moment. So just work with me. How many of you would admit that sometime in your life, you have indeed harmed someone else with either your words or your actions? You'd say yes to that. Okay, next one. How many of you have ever in your life dishonored your parents? Your parents said, don't do that, and you went and did it anyway. I hope my kids have both of their hands raised. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Um, how many of you have ever been unkind to a sister, brother, and for many of you, even this morning, how many raise your hands? Okay, across the board. I mean, at some point in time, you were unkind. Um, now, listen very carefully to this next one. How many of you have ever told a lie? Just looking to see if someone doesn't have their hand up because, boy, we are going to jump right on you if that's the case, okay? Now, listen very carefully to this next one. How many of you have thought to yourself in the past 30 seconds, I am prepared to lie in church depending, <laughs> depending on what he asks me next? That's right. Now, thank you for those who raised your hands. The truthful ones are here. So if you're, if you're honest with yourself, the truth of it is, your mind could be racing for a moment. Other than the fact I told you you'd be safe, but you're saying, Manning, depending on what he asks, I'm not raising my hand. Right? And I stop right there because if I go down the road, how many have entertained attitudes or thoughts that you know is not pleasing to God? How many have had lust? How many? And I could go through a whole bunch of stuff that would have a whole bunch of us blushing saying, I'm not raising my hand to that. And the truth of it is we know it would be true of us. So here's my point. All over the church, all over the world, whether you are in a mosque, whether you're in a church, a temple, or a synagogue, in every culture, in every language, if I went through this list and the list that I could go through, everybody would say, if they're honest, that there are things that I knew I shouldn't do and I did them anyway. And I knew it was wrong when I did it. Everyone would admit that. So here's the key point. Every religion no matter how they define God, exposes the fact that we are constantly at odds with whatever God it is we paint. Religion exposes that we're at odds. I know what I ought to do and I know what I ought not to do and I do them anyway or don't do them. We don't get it right. Now listen carefully. If we're honest, we would also admit that not only are we at oftentimes at odds with God's standards, we're at odds with our own standards. I mean, we're not even happy with ourselves. For some of us, that means that you have been carrying around a load of guilt for a long time. Because you see, well, there's one thing, it's one thing to let God down, but it's another thing when we look in the mirror and we look at ourselves and we know our past and we know some of the decisions that we've made. We know the price tag that's come with that at times. We know some of the things that we have done that has hurt and harmed other people and they're things we can't take back. And if you're here this morning carrying a load of guilt, you would not be the first person who thought, maybe I'll go to church and somehow get rid of my guilt. Because it's common in all of our lives, guilt. Remember that even non-religious people feel guilt because we're wired for what's right and wrong. You do not have to believe in God or have a God concept to have this natural law that God has burned into every conscience and soul. And that is, no one has to tell you it's wrong to punch somebody. No law has to be in place to tell you that you shouldn't lie or shouldn't steal. You know that. You know that it's wrong. It's natural, wired into us by God himself. Now, what do we do typically when our guilt begins to build up? 
Well, we often rationalize it. We rationalize it by going, well, nobody's perfect. Typically, we also always compare it. That's what I do is compare it, compare someone else. When Diane says to me, you know, you really dropped the ball on this or this, I say, yeah, I'll show you some guys who really dropped the ball. And if you look at them, I look better, right? Isn't that what we do? When all of a sudden we drop the ball with something, we've sinned in some way, and we're feeling really bad about ourselves, we think we, we just look for someone who's worse than us. Boy, like that. Look at that guy. He's horrible. I feel so good about me. That's what we do with guilt. And of course, there's other choices you have. Uh, some people work nonstop to work off their guilt or turn to alcohol or drugs, whatever. You see, guilt is a very powerful thing. Now listen very, very carefully, because I'm just about to describe why some of you are tormented by guilt. Guilt is so powerful because we can't go back and reparent. You see, I can look back and I, I can see the failures and some of the bad mistakes I made, but I can't go back and reparent my kids in that age when they really needed me to be the parent. So guilt's heavy. See, it's powerful because I can't go back and take back words. You know, once those words are out, they're out. And I can't go back and withdraw them. You see, once a decision is made, in few cases, I can't go back and undo the decision. So guilt is heavy. I can't go back and, 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 and try to undo unfaithfulness because it's, it's not possible. So guilt is a very, very powerful thing. And please understand that this is actually the, kind of the universal experience of all mankind. It's kind of the universal question of all mankind. And that is this, what do I do with my past? You know, we, we have some, some huge failures. Do I just carry them the rest of my life? Is that, is that just what, how what humankind does? We just kind of shoulder them? What do I do with my past failures? I mean, it's, it's really, quite honestly, it's the hidden, quiet, secret question of every human heart and conscience. And that is, what do I do with this? Because we hate ourselves for it. This is why when Jesus shows up on earth on that first Christmas, by the way, 12 weeks till Christmas, just if you care, 12 weeks till Christmas. This is why when Jesus shows up on earth as a baby born in Bethlehem that first night, the announcement of his birth by the angels were these words, good news for all mankind. Not good news for the Jews, not good news for any people specifically that believe in God, but not good news to those who don't believe in God. It was good news to all mankind, all the people of the world, all languages, all religions, or no religion, everyone. Why? Because the pressing question of the human soul is, what do I do about me? What do I do about the stuff in my life that I can't undo? That's the pressing question. And this is the incredible message of Jesus. God says, I'm the one who can take your past. I'm the one who can deal with the you piece. What about me? I can take your past failures and I can make them whole. I've got the answer for you and it's not you. The answer for you is wrapped up in Jesus. Now we've talked about the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, past couple of weeks, we've referred to him in some of his sermons and some of his dialogues. His incredible story of going from a, Jew, a Jewish hater and a, or a Christian hater and a murderer of Christians to a Jesus lover and a Christian preacher. An incredible story, and we know that he wrote most of the New Testament. And we're going to look this morning at a, a manuscript that he wrote where he's actually writing to the Romans, and it's called the book of Romans. And in that, he's trying to describe to them Jesus. He's trying to describe to them the difference between all the stuff they would have and what Jesus, if you will, brings to the table. He's trying to describe to them Jesus and explain Jesus, just not as the Savior of the Jews, but Jesus as the Savior of the world and what that means. So I want to read to you a couple of verses, there's just four verses we're going to look at, beginning in Romans chapter 8, and we're going to begin with the, the verse, very first verse, but here's the piece I want to get so you understand why he's coming in here. He's writing this as he's already addressing this issue of the human heart, and that is, what do we do with our past? What do we do with the burdens that we carry because we know our failures? 
So here's how he begins in in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. First verse is a great starting point. Listen to it. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Now, the Greek word condemnation is a legal term. And basically, the legal term says this. You've been found guilty. That's what condemnation means. You're condemned. Which means you're not accused, you're condemned. You've gone through the trial, you've been found guilty, and now you're condemned to punishment. Uh, Punishment of death, punishment by having restitution, whatever it might be. But please know, we know what condemned means. Condemned means you're found guilty. No way around it. Court's done, finished, you are guilty. But he says, if you're in Christ, regardless of your past, regardless of who you are, regardless of your race, no matter what you did, no matter what laws you broke, once you are placed in Christ, you are no longer condemned. A religious system might condemn you. You might condemn yourself. Other people might condemn you. Other people that you've heard along the way may never forgive you and always condemn you. But he says, I find you to be in a place of no condemnation. God says, once you're placed in, the, in my son, my son placed in your life, put it that way, you are no longer condemned. You might even condemn yourself, which I have found a lot of Christians do for a long, long time. Set free by God, but held bondage by themselves. And the evil one helps with that easily. But he said, you might even condemn yourself, but you'd be wrong. You're not condemned. How does it work? Well, verse 2. Because, so therefore, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. What does that mean? Let's walk through it. So through Christ, first of all, it means through Christ means nothing you could do. Listen, I can tell you right now, churches are full, full of people who sincerely want to do better. I mean, every church group out there has got people full, full of people that say, just sincerely want to get it right. I know I've wronged in the past. I sincerely want to make it right. I want to make it up. Sincerely, I want to do better. But he says, so first of all, it's not you. It's through Christ. It's nothing that you've done. And then he says, in this life, there are two laws that are at work. So let me explain it to you. And when I get done, you'll say, that makes perfectly good sense. There's two laws at work. There's the law of the spirit, he says, and there's the law of sin and death. Two laws. Let's talk about sin and death first. Now, once I explain this, you're going to say, I got it. I I see it so clearly. And and here's the first law, the law of sin and death. Whenever you sin, something dies. That's the easy explanation of the law. The law of sin and death is whenever there's sin that takes place, something dies. Real simple. Let me explain it for you this way. Whenever you harm someone in word or deed, so you've got a friend or a family member, and whenever you harm them in something you say or something you do, the relationship is wounded. Whenever there is sin, something dies. So when harmed by word or deed, it's wounded. Some of us in this room have killed relationships because of something that we did or something that we said. Maybe you've killed a relationship with a parent with your siblings, with your kids, maybe a spouse. You've killed relationships through your lying. You've killed relationships through your dishonesty. Some of us have killed a marriage through our unfaithfulness. This is how the law works. This is the law of humanity. This is the law of nature that sin results in death. And so you understand that whenever there's sin, something dies. And we're talking specifically of relationships. That when sin's involved, the relationship somehow dies. God says, just as your sin kills earthly relationships around you, so your sin kills our relationship, the relationship with God. You can say, well, I don't believe in that law. You don't have to believe in that law for that law to be true. When you go out here today, if you want to drive, go down this road at 60 miles an hour and the police officer stops you for being, you know, hitting a 25 mile an hour zone, you can say, well, I don't believe it. And he would say, well, good for you. (laughs) So you don't have to believe the law for the law to still be true. God says, just as your sin kills relationships, your sin kills our relationship. But now what's interesting is that law is, is a law that's in fact in place and isn't changing. Now that law is a very powerful law that whenever there's sin, there is death. But that law is overcome by another law. Again, let me explain this one. So picture this. Every time you take off in an airplane, you go to the airport, you get on, you take off. Every time you take off in an airplane, has the law of gravity changed? Has the law of gravity lessened? Any weaker? I mean, I would challenge you to go home today, climb up a tree and jump off. The law of gravity is still working. The law of gravity is functioning and it does not go away. And even though you're flying, 
the law of gravity still exists. But see, someone along the way figured out the law of aerodynamics. And that law knows how to beat the law of gravity. That law trumps it. That law is more powerful than the law of gravity. And every time you get in a plane, a more powerful law is in effect. I want you to think about that. Every time you fly, a more powerful law is in effect. Paul says this, the law of sin and death will always be here. The law of sin and death is powerful. But Jesus Christ has a new law. There's a new law that's available to you, and it's more more powerful than the law of sin and death. It's this new law called the law of the Spirit. The law of the Spirit who gives life. Now, what is this law of the Spirit? I'll give you a simple definition. The law of the Spirit is the law of forgiveness and grace. That's the new law. And God has chosen, not because of anything that you have done, or can do, or promise to do. I put the promise in there because that's where we all live. See, what happens is this. We fail, we sin, we do something horrible, we hurt someone, and we go, I'll never do it again. Oh, you will. I'll never, I pro- I'll never do it again. I promise God from now to this point where I'll be kind to every little furry creature. I, I promise God, oh, how many times has this God? I'm so sorry, God. I'll be kind to every Red Sox fan from here out. <laughs> no, I've made that, I've said that so many times. God says, stop saying it. But we do those things, right? We always go back with God, I'll give money, I'll work harder, I'll serve, I'll do whatever. God has chosen not because of anything that you have done or could do or would promise to do. He has chosen to invite us in to a relationship with him. It's a relationship of forgiveness and grace. The law of sin and death doesn't go away. It's not diminished. It's a very powerful law. But the law of forgiveness and grace is more powerful. And this is what Jesus has done. Now, you're going to get this. Some of us have killed relationships with people because of our sin. We feel bad about it. We try to make amends. We write letters. We send emails. We're on our best behavior. We do everything we can to make it right. Now, listen carefully. And in the middle of this, we begin to realize that I can do all of this and more. And the bottom line is it won't be enough unless... The other person invites me back into the relationship with forgiveness, right? I can do all the stuff. I can focus on everything I can, but none of that stuff works. The only way for the relationship to be restored is if they invite you back in and if they extend forgiveness. The law of sin and death does not go away, but the law of the spirit of forgiveness and grace brings that which is dead back to life. Renewed relationship. Now, religion reminds us of this. Religion reminds us of our our constant work and failure along the way. You see, religion says, here's God up here, and religion gives all the stuff you have to do to somehow make God happy. And what religion exposes is even when I give all the stuff, I still can't keep it right. That's why I said religion is full of failures. Because we can't keep it. And God is saying this. I understand that your religion leaves you in the perfect place. Catch this now. Religion leaves you in the perfect place of realizing that you need help. Because there's something wrong with you. Because you can't get it right. You can't get rid of the law of sin and death And you can't get rid of it and somehow get better at it or do better along the way. Add a verse in, verse 3. For what the law was powerless to do. Now, I'm going to come back to you and ask you about what this law is. But for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh. So it starts off by saying, so Paul says, for, so what the law, so what, what is the law he's talking about? Specifically, at this point, he was talking about the Old Testament. All the Old Testament rules and all the Testament rules that people had to do to somehow be holy or, or stay close to God. But I would say to you, any law, by any law, I just mean this, any religious rule that's in place, he would say, for whatever the law is you choose to believe in, it's powerless to do something. What's that key thing? 
Now, quite honestly, it could be any law. Ten commandments, 20 commandments, 600 commandments, eight commandments. You know, you forget the law, but whatever it might be. Whatever the law was powerless to do. Here's the question for you. The law is supposed to do something. What is it that every one of us wish we could have done? Don't answer out loud. What is it that, the, what is it that every one of us wishes that we could have done? I'll tell you what it is. What I want is I want complete and full forgiveness. What everyone wants done is that I want to be guilt-free. I would like to not have my conscience beating me up with my past. What I would really like to have done is something that would wipe the past in such a way that it doesn't have to suck the joy out of my life anymore. Because just when I'm happy, I'm reminded, well, don't forget you did this, and boom, it comes back down again. I would like to be in a place where my past no longer controls me. The law, the rules of religion, can't do any of that. In fact, all the laws and all the rules of religion do, they just expose the fact that you can't get it right. See, as I said before, before, many times, set the law yourself, the speed limit out here. If, you, if we said to everybody, listen, the road you're going to go down, you get to set the speed limit. Pick your number. And even if you pick the number, you won't keep it. Eventually, you'll go, well, if I set it, I can break it. And that's how it goes. We break the rules. So the law condemns. And, and what happens when the law condemns, the guilt piles on. And then what happens is we go down the excuse road. Nobody's perfect. It was only a little lie. Well, I I said I was sorry. It's not my fault. Or we try to lessen the rules and lower the bar. None of that works. What the law could not do, God did. The law tried, what the law was trying to do is to free us up from guilt. Can't do it. It exposes the guilt. So he says this. So God did by sending his own son Jesus to be a sin offering. Not just to the Jews, not just to the Romans, but to all the people of the world. What the law was powerless to do, what religion is powerless to do, what traditions are powerless to do, all the religious stuff which is powerless to do. You can stand up or you can kneel. You can say rote prayers over and over again. You can cross yourself and bless yourself. You can do all these things over and over and over again. But none of them do what only God can do. All that stuff, it doesn't work. They create this tension because none of them solve the tension. But what about me and the guilt that I carry? Let's get down to verse 4, our last verse. For in order, in order that the righteous requirement of the law, so he sends Jesus in to do this work, in order that the, the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Let me just explain that in real simple terms. What is the righteous requirement of the law? You know what that means? In the righteous requirement is you keep the law. He says, so bottom line is this, the righteous requirement, in order for you to be righteous, in order for me to be righteous, the righteous requirement is that you keep the law. Which law? All of them. How often? Every time. See, the law says this is what it means to be holy, and then you have to keep the law to be holy. So he says, so the, the righteous requirement, man, you, if you want to try to keep it, you can, but here's what it means. It means this. You're saying this. I will never harm others. Never have an unkind word to someone else. I will be kind to my brother and my sister every single time. I will be honest in all of my dealings. No shading ever. I will never lie. Never. Not even once. Not even a little one. I will be faithful to my spouse in my actions and my thoughts at all times. I will always put others first. Show of hands how many people want to take that plan? Keep that one? Yeah, we can. Can't pull it off. Can't pull it off. So read four again. So Jesus comes in order that the righteous requirement, which would mean that we keep the law, might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now, be sure to understand what Jesus Christ offers you. He offers you a new standing. Back to the first verse, it says, there's now, therefore, no condemnation. Here's the key piece, and we'll, and we'll close and wrap up. It means that when you have Jesus Christ in your life, your standing is that of one who has kept every single law. Your current standing before that is condemned. Guilty, you can't keep any of the laws. But what's interesting, when I invite Christ into my life, I'm given a new standing, and the new standing is that of righteous, which means I've kept every law. You've kept them all. You're viewed as perfect. 
I got to tell you, I know you, you're not perfect. I know me, I'm not perfect. But what it means in Christ is the new standing is, I am viewed by him as one who's kept them all, no condemnation. You're standing as one who has kept the law perfectly every single time. And you can't earn it. You can't work for it. You can't repeat a thousand prayers for it. You can't buy that kind of standing. But it's yours when you say yes to Jesus Christ. You see, folks, the dilemma of all religions is all religions expose our inability, our inability to live up to the standards. Some will say, well, that's why I'm not religious. Every belief system, and everyone has a belief system, exposes the fact that we can't even live up to our own standards. So let's move to close. See, religion focuses on three things. The things that you ought to do, the things that you ought not to do, and the fact that you blow both of those and then you have to atone for them. Just think about that. That's what religion exposes. Here's what you should do, shouldn't do, you don't do it, so now it exposes the fact that you can't keep it. Now we've got to somehow make up for that. The message of Christianity is this. What all of the religions can't do, what all of the religious trappings can't do, what all the self-helps can't do, what all the sincerity in the world can't do, Jesus Christ did when he came. And he took our sins And he dealt with the question, well, what about me? What about this guilt that I carry? So whether you're in church, whether you're someone outside of the church, if there is something inside of you, now listen carefully now. If there's something inside of you that is still trying to earn God's favor, then either you've never accepted his forgiveness or you really don't understand it. And I have to say, sadly, I have counseled countless Christians through the years, Christians whose lives seem to be dominated by guilt and seem to spend most of their Christian life somehow trying to figure out how to pay back the debt and somehow trying to earn God's favor or his forgiveness. They say things like this, well, I know I'm not worthy. I've done all of these things. I I had this one decision in my life that just wrecked my life and my kids, my family. I I have so much regret. So I I, I promise I'm going to serve God more. I'm going to give more. I'm going to do this, this, or that. I promise I'm going to be a good law keeper from this point forward. If there's any of that thinking that goes on in your head, then maybe you've never accepted the greatest gift ever, and that's this grace, of, this gift of forgiveness and grace. Absolute, total forgiveness. So, as we think this through, I've got, I see people that have developed and have tried to use Scripture to make this gift only for a select few, the elect. No, no, it's for everybody, all mankind. And those angels' message, they got it absolutely right in those shepherds when they say, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. And I meet people who have grown up in the church, solid followers of Jesus, grew up in the church, still in the church, that have never received the power of the forgiveness of Christ that pronounces them to be not under condemnation but giving them a new standing. The good news is so clear. In Jesus, there is no condemnation. You're viewed as perfect and righteous. So here's how we'll close. If you're a person and you're here and you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you you say, I'm not a follower of Jesus. You've never done that. Might I challenge you to say, well, why not? Why not now? I mean, We're talking about forgiveness. We're talking about the issue of the past finally being done. And I would just challenge you, why not today? It's a simple prayer. Listen carefully. Lord Jesus, I don't know what to do about me. And just when I think I've got my past settled, it comes back up and it bites me. I have a past. I've got past failures and man... I I fall short because I know it's right to do it and I don't do it. And so I don't know what to do about me. Only you can set me free. Jesus, I choose you. I choose your law of the Spirit over the law of sin and death. I choose the law 
of forgiveness and grace. I ask you to forgive my sins, past sins, my present sins. And I would be so bold to say, and would you forgive my future sins because of Jesus? I choose you. But maybe you're a follower of Jesus. How about you who've been in the church your whole life? And yet you carry this guilt because you've never embraced the forgiveness of Christ. So why not today? And maybe your prayer sounds like this. Lord, I take you at your word. I am not condemned. I am righteous. You see me as righteous. I will no longer let Satan lie to me, telling me that I'm condemned when in fact he knows that I am free. I need to know I am free. So I will no longer condemn myself. Today, Jesus, I choose you and your freedom for my life. My last statement. If you're a person that would say, yeah, I feel like I've lost my faith. I go, really? How do you lose forgiveness? You see... I got news for you. His forgiveness is not yours to lose because he's the one who's the giver of it. So maybe along the way, if you felt like you lost your faith, I'd reconsider. Maybe you've lost your faith in religious stuff, but not in the God of the Spirit, the law of the Spirit of forgiveness and grace. Come back next week. We'll wrap up. Please stand. Lord Jesus, I believe in the last three minutes there are people who have prayed from their heart because it's not the words, it's the heart that perhaps have made for the first time a decision to follow you. Seal that in their heart. May they have that keen awareness of your spirit now at work in them. It's the spirit of forgiveness and grace. It's no longer the, the law of death, sin and death. I believe in the past three minutes there have been people here that have been trying to earn your love for a long time. Can't figure out what's going on. The guilt they carry from the past, past decisions, it's time to let that go. Understanding there's consequences, but we can deal with consequences, but that guilt is from Satan and it bogs us down. And I believe there are some today who you have just set free. May they never go back into that prison of self-guilt and doubt. For you have said, in Christ, there is no condemnation. Thank you for setting us free. Dismiss us in your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.